we had to sort of pause our recording because when we walked into the studio today, bombs were literally dropping. As the sun came up this morning, a missile striking an industrial park in western Ukraine. Yeah, Joe had wrote an episode about um, the gold medalist, uh, the skating Olympics and the scandal of the doping. The shame of that and what athletes do when that's their life, that's their identity, that's their narrative, that's all who they are as an ice skater or an athlete or a writer or whatever you are. And then while that happened, Russia did something a lot bigger. <laughs> right. <laughs> Invading the little country of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is not concerning himself with the actual information here. He has declared both of these provinces or oblasts as Russian territory. This radar station took a direct hit. Russia is picking off Ukraine's military facilities one after another. I wonder if they wait. Do you think Putin waiting for the Olympics to be over for everyone to enjoy it and then... Oh, I really do. I think that was a, a political move, definitely. I realized while we were watching the news, we kind of had an episode brewing about this. And so this is kind of fortuitous timing. Have you ever heard of a man named Sir John Baggett Glub? Never. He was, I think it would be very fair to say, a colonialist. Um, he, he was a British guy. And there's a sir in front of his name for a reason. That usually means they're British. But he went into the the Royal Military Academy in uh, Britain in 1914. And he, you know, his father was an officer in the Royal Engineers. He was in the Royal Engineers. He served in the First World War in, like, France and Belgium. Uh, he was given the Military Cross. Actually, I'm going to shorten his biography by saying that Throughout war, he got just award after award after award. When he got out, he wrote about warfare, and he got award after award after award for his writing. So, he's, he's a talented guy. This is a leader of men. Yeah, war he, hero. He he was eventually hired on to to serve Jordan, the Jordan government, um, and like the Arab Legion. So, like, yeah, he he was. A war, not a war hero, but definitely like somebody of note. Um, his most probably accomplished, uh, most notable thing he did in his life, uh, he wrote something called The Fate of Empires and Search for Survival. I have wanted to do an episode about this book for a long time now. Um, what attracts you to it? What's the, what's the premise of this book? I first read about it because I saw some anti-American hate online and they kept quoting this book. And this is when I say hate, I don't mean like I don't go to Facebook and I don't go to hate groups. I don't read a lot of social media. This is like book nerds. So when I say hate, that's in quotes. This is like people pushing up their glasses with their index <laughs> finger and like they're about to read you the riot act through history. Um, Basically, what the fate of empires is, is it outlines um, the lifespan that an empire goes through and like when it starts to collapse and how it can start to collapse, like what that that's going to look like. I kind of have that fear that the United States is headed towards that. America's headed. The, the, our best days are behind us. The Industrial Revolution and coming back from World War Two, the baby boom. And now we're we had the tech boom. And now we're on our way down and out. 
Right. Um, that's exactly what the episode was originally going to be. Um, the fate of empires out like it outlines the lifespan and there are such specific markers for when an empire starts to fall. Um, and by fall, I mean like in the classic Roman sense. Um, so, okay, let me, let me bring up a little timeline here because I, I want to give you some examples. Um, in the fate of empires, it even has like a table where it's like, it, it shows the, the nation. Okay. Let's say it's like, um, 859 BC. That's the Assyrian empire. And they went on for about 247 years. Um, you know, uh, Dan Carlin in his hardcore history podcast talks about how people would later stumble upon the Assyrian empire and they would see, you know, huge, uh, blank spots where they're you know, just these incredibly massive walls used to stand. Like they had, a, a full-on castles and things like that back in the BC period, and they're gone. Like like it was like like yeah. They they wouldn't just find ruins. They would find foundational outlines where the ruins should have been. Like nothing was ever there. And at some point, these people and these properties had more land and value and resources that more than you would think would ever be able to be stripped from them. Right. So I'm I'm actually going to be I'm going to. Continue on from the Assyrian Empire. I'm just going to read you parts of this table to, to get a full picture of how long an empire lasts. Because people looking at America thinking we're going to go on forever, that's not how empires work. Um, and when we say empire, I do mean like, um, like the British Empire. We're talking colonies. We're talking continents. We're kind of talking about how America has satellite colonies we have you know samoa and like hawaii and alaska yeah guam (laughs) rico (laughs) right puerto rico we yeah we if anyone thinks that america isn't a modern day empire we totally are we we never gave up the dream of empire uh teddy roosevelt when he invaded spain he literally used the phrase empire and empire building when he was going after spain um so persia as an empire, lasted about 208 years. That's 538 to 330 BC. Greece was 231 years. The Rome's, uh, the Roman Republic, just as a republic, was 233 years. Um, that surprised me. I thought that one would be longer. Well, there was there was eras. They were a republic, and then they were an empire. Uh, they started taking colonies, they expanded, they became a, like, they, they declared an emperor, and that was about 207 years. Um, the Arab Empire, 246. The Ottoman Empire, 250. Spain, 250. The Romanov Empire in Russia, 234. Um, Britain, close, isn't it? 250 years. It's yeah, like, it is. Was that four or five lifetimes? I mean, in the old days less, but... Not it's not that long a period of time, right? It it really isn't. So, I want to talk a little bit about Russia as an empire, and then I want to circle back to the U.S. So, when we say the Romanov Empire, um, okay, Tsar Peter, um, in, from the Romanov Empire, is credited with basically laying the foundation for what is the Russian Empire, for what is Russia. Um, when we talk and see on the news about how Putin is absolutely gung-ho to unite the fringe countries around Russia, 
he's not just after Ukraine. He wrote in his autobiography that he thought it was a shame that like all these smaller countries around Russia weren't part of what we remember as the USSR. He's he's nostalgic about the olden days before his time and wants Russia, this already humongous country, to, to gobble up its lost children. That is the absolute perfect word for it, the lost children. Um, he wants Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia and Belarus. He wants Ukraine. If people are listening, they're like, they, they see the news, they see the bombs dropping. Um, you know, we, we saw on our way in 150 people dead in the Ukraine already just from the initial attack. That isn't something where he is like, he just wants Ukraine because they have, um, you know, a, a community of hackers who are working on the U.S. computers. They don't have that much oil. They don't have the best potato farm in all of Russia. What the Ukraine has is a history with Russia. They were part of this original Russian empire. When we talk about going back to laying the foundations for Russia, Ukraine was Russia. They were the heart of Russia, effectively. But they decided they wanted to be a democracy. Right. And that is right. And it wasn't that long ago. No, I, I, I don't think it was. Right. They, they made their declaration of independence in 91. And ironically, when I, I went to look up earlier, when Russia began, like officially, it listed it as 91 or 92. So it's like, that's not true. Russia has ties back to 900 AD when the Scandinavian Vikings, you know, showed up at Kiev. His ex-wife wants a divorce and Putin wants her back. Right. That's, yeah. <laughs> I, I think... No, I, I think your phrase "uniting lost children" is is perfect. That is, ex in in Putin's own manifesto, he really looks at it like that. He looks at it as these are parts of Russia, and like it's it looks bad for them historically to have lost parts of their that they've lost their fingers and toes. Joe, is this a isolated, insulated, tyrant, egomaniac? That his inner circle is telling him he can do whatever he wants. He's the most powerful man in the world, and he's listening to the wrong people. Is that possible? Back in the day, uh, around the time Trump was uh, beginning his presidency, I looked into a book called, I think it was called Nothing is Real and Everything is Possible. And it that and other books really kind of outline Putin as not really having an inner circle. He, he has people he relies on. He has like, you know, obviously spy masters and generals and people who advise him. But even the Russian government and people around him paint him as sort of like this lone gangster, you know, caricature. That's interesting. There, There is. But still egomanic ty tyrant, though. Oh, so much. <laughs> um, there's a lot of information we've gotten talking about how Putin is possibly the richest man who currently lives. It's just that he doesn't claim any of it. Um, he has invested the companies like, okay, so before Putin, the old oligarchs basically hold, held all of the factories in Russia. Putin went around and got rid of the oligarchs who, who owned the factories throughout the communist period. And he basically put the money or the control in the hands of his personal friends. 
and wealth in general. I, I remember some anecdote about how he is, you know, put you know millions and millions of dollars into the hands of a f- personal friend of his who's like a prized violinist. Like it sounds like he picks his um, inner circle out at complete random, but instead of having a traditional inner circle where he gets advice from. It's just an inner circle of people who hold bags of money for him. Like if you just imagine, you know, inviting everybody to your wedding and just imagine that like each of them has like a a bank sack with a dollar sign printed on the outside. That's Putin's inner circle. He he doesn't have friends. He has, you know, uh, small personal banks walking around. So I want to get sorry to drag us way off point, but. The Fate of Empires, um, when I first started looking into it, it was because I was watching, um, it's because I was watching Anthony Bourdain. This sounds like a weird way to come at this, but um, in The Fate of Empires, they mentioned that there are signs that an empire is about to go into its um, its sunset, its, its collapse period. In the book, Sir John Glubb talks about how there are weird indicators when this is about to happen, when the collapse starts. One of them is um, people get more decadent and they listen to chefs more. Like like this <laughs> book was written uh, in like the 70s or was, or was copyrighted in the 70s. And he's writing about, you know, things that are happening now. Like we, we can't stop watching chefs and we make celebrities out of them. We don't have to do anything wonderful to be a celebrity? No. <laughs> No, it's just, I was watching, uh, um, uh, like I was with my girlfriend and her family, and we were watching them decorate chocolate for hours. It was a reality TV show. And I was like, yep, this is the sign of the empire collapsing. And I couldn't say that because that makes you sound like a crazy person. Um, But yeah, Sir John Glubb was talking about how uh, there are these little signs and little indicators but the biggest indicator really is just, um, you know, an empire is starting to shrink uh, when it hits about 250 years. Now, we are about 250 years away from the phrase, give me liberty or give me death. Right. But we might get a little bit of grace because we didn't get that established till. Right. I of the world power. When you have the world power, that's when the clock starts. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. But statistically... History shows us we're there right now. Right. It could happen any day. Yeah. <laughs> or it already right. started to happen. <laughs> We've already started our decline. We just don't notice it because nobody does when they're on top, right? Well, I I think, not to too put fine of a point on it, but when I had originally planned out an episode about the fate of empires, that I wrote that in the end of the show. The idea was we would compare all of these indicators to Sir John Glubb. The fact that we're still desperately clinging to our satellites, our, our satellite nations, the the fact that we are, um, uh, oh, the other one that he mentions is that the Roman Senate, before they collapsed, the senators held all of the land Cording, and nobody could nobody could live anywhere. Hoarding resources. Right. Um, Let's think about that with the oil all over the world, too. And then, like, a couple of weeks ago, you and I did an episode about Jared Kushner and how these land barons who own companies, these companies now own 900 apartments under Jared Kushner's name. So there are some real mirrors and parallels to a collapsing empire and us. 
you know, we're making celebrity as celebrities out of people to take our minds off things. We're, you know, obsessed with decadencies. We are um, letting the quote unquote, not our actual senators, but we're letting land barons in the guise of a company own all of the houses, all of the land that we would normally live in. Um, and I've seen that in parts I've traveled, not this part of the country, we're in the Northwest, but in the Southwest, the Phoenix area, Midwest, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, New York, there's places where commercial property is vacant, but they refuse to rent it out or lease it out for less money than they're asking. And they'd rather just keep it keep it vacant, let it rot, than have people in it and make a profit. It's crazy, but it's happening all over the country. Right, that's what we're seeing nonstop is... Um, a company would rather keep something vacant and let it slowly collapse um, than to not make the profit that a, a fleeced renter would give them hypothetically if they moved in. Um, according to, I mean, if, if he were alive, I think Sir John Glubb might be like, yeah, you guys are on your way out. I don't want to make that sound as grim as I just did. For instance, like Britain they collapsed gracefully if you want to look at one of these empires we started the show saying the assyrian empire was dust and like blank spots on the map uh that their ruins were gone um the british empire for all of the atrocities they committed for all the colonialism the imperialism we we really should hold them up for the standard of what not to do when you make an empire but when they collapsed, they shrank. They, they did exactly what they were supposed to, to retain a country. They went from empire to island nation. They went from empire to country that can participate in the world economy. Like for human nature, doesn't it feel like if, if you're having problems in your relationship, you should work on it? If your business is struggling, you should you should acknowledge it and attack the problems. But sometimes talking about the end of America as we know it. Doesn't it seem unpatriotic? It really does. This is not a conversation I can have with everybody. And it, there's no... There's it's no not. Polite. It doesn't mean we don't love it or want it to continue. <laughs> yeah. If I'm at a dinner party and I start talking about the collapse of America, I'm not a popular person. like the <laughs> Yeah. If we're, if we're headed for the rocks, and we know that, and there's signs, and history has shown us, shouldn't it be something we should be able to openly talk about so maybe we could change? That would be nice. Um, I would like it more if people just imagine me ruining uh, dinner with my girlfriend's parents by being like, hey, everybody, you know what this chocolate <laughs> show reminds me of? The collapse of America. Um, jo- Joe would rather have us lose everything and say, I told you so, even if he's in, <laughs> even if he's in physical, emotional, financial pain. He likes it. It's a comfort I zone for him. Wearing a helmet, being shelled, and I'm like, see, I was right. <laughs> Um, the phrase I was right is going to be on my tombstone, by the way, to wrap things back to, to Russia and what's going on now. I know we've taken quite a few caveats here and we've gone on a ride, but I kind of want to point to everybody in history and not say, I told you so, but, but to bring things into a bigger spotlight, the things you're going to hear for the next, say several months on the news the things you're going to hear are going to be all about how the little micro atrocities are going to happen. You're going to hear coverage from the war. You're going to hear bombs dropping, refugees fleeing. 
you're going to hear about how, you know, you're going to hear about Russia's pride and individual country reactions. But what you probably won't hear is why in the very grand scope of, you know, countries and empires, why is this happening? Everybody is looking at this like Putin is crazy, like he's a madman. Why would he invade Ukraine? They've, you know, been independent for, you know, since the 90s. Well, this is why. It's because if you don't want to be Britain, if you don't want to collapse gracefully, you do what both America and Russia are doing right now. You cling to your satellites. You cling to your children while you collapse. So does picking fights with other countries and getting involved in things you shouldn't end up in collapse too? Is that part of the formula? Before Rome collapsed, it split off and it split off again and it was invaded and it, it you know, its population was replaced by people who didn't give a shit about... Uh, Less like, loyal. Yeah. You have this period of empire in the last 200, you know, of the last few years, of 250 years, you have a period where um, all the landowners are trying to hold on to what they have. The empire doesn't want to shrink. It resists shrinking like a cell that is trying to grow, and it's reached the limits of what its cell wall can contain. It will try to recapture land around it. It will try to hang on to its colonies, and then it will pop a very very poorly ran business basically yeah <laughs> they're, they're, they're using their time and energy and resources in the wrong way right to cling to things to hold on to things that they should probably have cut loose a like i said a, a graceful shrink of a nation is what britain did it's let go go into the sunset become a nation instead of an empire we don't look like we're doing that uh, america Russia obviously isn't doing that. Um, and if anyone's wondering how this timeline stacks up, um, you know, the, the 250 years, uh, we had Ivan the Terrible in Russia in 1547. Um, Tsar Peter starts laying the foundation for what they actually call the Russian Empire in 1689. Um, you know, that, that lasts until about 1725. And from the laying of the foundation empire for Russia, it's been about 290, 280 years. So we are a little bit overdue, but we're pretty close to on track for um, John Glubb's you know, projection of how long an empire should last. You think we get a little bit of more time because we're, we're geographically located? If we were in the Middle East or in Europe, do you think it would already be over? <laughs> you know what I mean? I... Yeah. Canada uh, Mexico are pretty non-threatening countries. I think that might be part of it. I think that, well, something, I'm, I'm going to get slaughtered by historians, by the way. Like, there are politicians and historians who are going to be looking at me and shaking their head. I but, know for a fact no Canadians listen to this show, so if you want to take a okay. shot at one country, but <laughs> we don't have any Canadian. The idea that in the last couple of years we have been very, very obsessed uh, as Americans, with um, Mexico sending immigrants to take our jobs, and you know, as Trump said, caravans of them coming to to invade us. Because many of those people, a percentage, a big, fairly big percentage, of those people, are criminals. That sounds so close to how the Romans reacted to the Gauls, the French. 
the the French used to be the Gauls, and they would come up in big groups and legally buy uh, land, or they would come in and slip in and then start taking jobs. And um, they spoke a weird language. They were speaking basically proto-French. And it's not happening on my watch. It's not going to happen. We're calling up the military. Not the guard. We're calling up the military. And we're going to have the military stationed. They're not coming into this country. It looks so similar. Um, senators having all the land, having us have corporations hold all the land. I mean, the, the parallels are so distinct. And then we look across the water and we see Russia doing almost the exact same thing, unwilling to give up her original lands, her, her children, um, you know, trying desperately to grab onto these lands that are sort of like on their satellites, their fringe. And, you know, their, their leader taking such an incredible amount of pride in what the empire used to be. I think maybe Putin should have read Sir John Club, and he might have benefited from the fate of empires. I just can't understand these world leader dictator types. I, to me, it would seem like a pain in the ass. I don't want any trouble. I don't want to upset the rest of the world. <laughs> We're doing well. At least I am. <laughs> Why cause more trouble? <laughs> Why expose myself? Yeah, that's a good question. But again, I'm not a high achiever, obviously. I, it's funny you say it. I was just about to say, you know, why not close off, you know, like why not gracefully shrink, stabilize your economy, become Britain, sail off into the sunset, become a, a participate, you know, participate in the UN and the greater global economy. And then the first thought I had was exactly what you just said. This is why I'm not, you know, a high achieving tyrant. Right. Or, or Germany. World War One. they lost, lost a lot of people, a lot, right? Right. Terrible loss in World War One, And they said, hey, we're going to try to take over the world again. Can I read to you a couple of quotes from the countries who are now starting to get involved in this? Because a lot of people are going to be asking, who are our allies? As far as we know right now, it's Russia and China who have basically come to an agreement over, you know, letting Russia take Ukraine. Um, but the United States... Forget what the other... 900s uh, countries want, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, from the U.S., Biden said, the world will hold Russia accountable. Um, now, China, the foreign ministry repeatedly declined to call the attack an invasion at a press briefing on Thursday. So, again, China basically has a pact with them. Um, NATO, obviously, has sided with Ukraine. From the UK, uh, Johnson said, I am appalled by the horrific events in the Ukraine, and I have spoken to President Zelensky to discuss next steps. Um, in Germany, they called it an unscrupulous act. In France, they said there would be deep and lasting consequences for our lives. Uh, in Canada, they said these reckless and dangerous acts will not go unpunished. So we could basically play this game all day. Um, we will link off to an article that has responses from most of the countries. But this isn't going to look like World War II. There are too many countries, too many superpowers, who have already sort of thrown in for the Ukraine. So this really could look more like China and Russia deciding it's okay to take a nearby territory and everybody else shaking their head, saying, whoa, you know... You were a you are a nation right now. Stop trying to play empire. 
Now, the tragedy to me personally about this is how quickly we forget. You know, we see these numbers. I, I woke up this morning and saw that the first seven Ukraine military died. And as the days progress now, it's up to 170. And I know when we go over three, we get desensitized to it. We don't have a name, a face. Well, these people are, they're soldiers, but they are a dad, a husband, a brother, a son. Um, you know, there's also, you know, women and children being killed. And I want to just remember that this is not just a video game. Oh, look, 500 people died or 10,000 people died. These cities got bombed. These are people's lives and that the people are afraid and, and they're just like us. They're scared and, and they want to feel safe. 